Since their inception, video games have really been about one thing, choice. One of the defining factors that sets gaming apart from other forms of entertainment, like watching television or reading a book, is a level of control given to the player that simply isn't found in other media. Moviegoers can no more affect what is happening on the silver screen than readers can convince their protagonists to make better decisions. Even the choose-your-own-adventure books of our youth offer only the faintest illusion of multiple courses of action. Most end with the reader's grisly death and a quick flip of the pages back to safety. The earliest video games provided only the most basic of choices. Will moving the Pong paddle up or down send the ball back toward your opponent? Should you tell Pac-Man to take the left or right path to eat more dots and, conversely, be eaten by fewer ghosts? Did the ghost eat Pac-Man? That was never really clear to me. Still, it was something, an interactive medium that didn't require the user's imagination to fill in the blanks. These weren't action figures with rudimentary joint movements. Those characters on the television screen were ours to command across varying levels of climate, culture, and difficulty, scaling toward end bosses that struck fear in our hearts and slicked our palms with sweat as we desperately fought to defeat them. And then the game ended. And we do it all over again, returning to level 1, all of the familiar enemies back in place waiting to be toppled once more. In the halcyon heydays of gaming's rise to prominence, we didn't yet recognize that our choices only mattered in the moment. As long as we made it to the end, the story was the same. Minions vanquished, evil leaders dethroned, day saved. No matter how many times we accomplished the goal, the end result was the same. But what if it didn't have to be? turn away from its servitude to King Koopa and instead pledge a life debt to Mario returning to help him in his hour of need during the final boss fight? What if shooting that snarky dog in Duck Hunt triggered a hidden animal cruelty minigame in which the player had to evade capture? What if the things we did in video games caused observable, emphatic changes in the world around our characters? What if our choices mattered? I'm Hunter Hendricks. Welcome to the inquest. The role-playing game genre was decidedly well-established by 1995, long past the point of inception or even popularization, but it would receive an important entry in its history that year. Prior to their acquisition of Japanese publisher Enix, Squaresoft, the industry giant behind the celebrated Final Fantasy series, put together an RPG dream team of designers and developers to create Chrono Trigger, released for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System right at the midpoint of the 90s. Today, it is widely regarded as one of, if not the, best role-playing games ever. Like many other games of its kind, Chrono Trigger had all the familiar trappings of the genre. Brave adventurers, evildoers, swords, and sorcery, all present and accounted for. But the reason that Chrono Trigger is remembered so fondly today, aside from its engaging story and, for the time, cutting-edge graphics, is that it introduced revolutionary concepts that would eventually become the status quo for games of its kind. Chief among these innovations was the way in which the game's final moments could be altered, in all, Chrono Trigger featured a whopping 12 endings, each of which was triggered, no pun intended, by the player's specific choices over the course of the story. The release of Chrono Trigger on March 11th of 1995, in truth, is only coincidentally related to the incorporation and subsequent formal launch of future video game juggernauts Bioware. 
The Canadian development group pushed off from the shores into deeper digital waters just two months after Chrono Trigger hit store shelves, and none of its founders were involved in the SNES Classics creation. But the timing could not have been more apt. That game's standout elements, character choices that really and truly made a difference in how the game played out, would eventually become BioWare's own signature. Of the six men at BioWare's core, three of them were recent medical school graduates, and conveniently they also had backgrounds in computer programming which they initially used to create simulations for doctoral students to use in their studies. As recreational gamers, these men soon realized that with their existing skill sets, they could actually create the kinds of games they wanted to play. Pooling their resources netted a sizable amount of capital for novices in the video game industry, right around $100,000, and off to work they went. As is the case with many studios, BioWare's first project was not particularly indicative of their eventual path. Shattered Steel was a mech warrior-style game of futuristic combat from the cockpit of a gigantic, alien-destroying robotic suit, and by all accounts, it was a moderate success. Not enough of one to get its proposed sequel off the ground, mind you, but enough to get the company's name on the radar. For their next trick, BioWare decided to try their hands at the role-playing genre. Though they did not intentionally set out to make a Dungeons & Dragons game, their publishing partnership with Interplay Entertainment, who had recently acquired the tabletop monolith's video game license from another company, Strategic Simulations, ultimately led to BioWare's demo, then titled Battleground Infinity, to become the beloved Baldur's Gate. Perhaps surprisingly, this would not be BioWare's first foray into the world of branching game paths. While Dungeons & Dragons might seem like the perfect framework for player choices affecting the story, Baldur's Gate had but one ending, no matter how the player character chose to get there. However, BioWare did begin to dabble with dynamic settings at this time. Baldur's Gate incorporated what would be eventually another BioWare mainstay for their style of role-playing games, a morality system. Rudimentary as it was, the player's actions in the Forgotten Realms would shift the attitudes of shopkeepers and NPC party members alike. Tilt too far toward the dark side by solving your problems with violence, not words, and merchants might jack up their prices just to give you a hard time right back. Be too much of a goody-two-shoes by seeking compromise instead of blood, however, and your more evil-inclined companions might turn their back on you. Or worse. Baldur's Gate was the massive hit that BioWare needed to launch themselves into the upper echelon of video game developers, selling almost as many copies as its closest contemporary, Blizzard's first entry into their high-fantasy action-adventure Diablo series. While the company would briefly dip back into the action genre with the third-person shooter MDK and its sequel, the turn of the century also saw them rebound to role-playing, with Baldur's Gate getting its own follow-up equally as successful as its predecessor. Their formula was proving to be a lasting one, and soon it would be applied to one of the greatest properties of all time, in a galaxy far, far away. Before it was sold lock, stock, and barrel to Disney in 2012, Star Wars seemed limitless. That's not to say that the House of Mouse imposed too many limits on what Star Wars could be, but they did de-canonize quite a bit of the property, moving fringe concepts under their Legends banner and out of the mainstay. 
When it was still in the hands of its original creator, celebrated filmmaker George Lucas, the science fiction juggernaut had spread far beyond its initial three entries, and they are somehow simultaneously more and less polished prequels. Under Lucas's control, the Star Wars Expanded Universe introduced countless characters, starships, planets, and bits of history to the series canon by way of every type of media imaginable. Novels, comic books, animation, and even toys contributed to further realizing Lucas's vision of a living, breathing universe outside of our own. Fans spent hours online cataloging and categorizing, and arguing, both for and against, to be fair, every new addition to the lore. For better or worse, Star Wars was growing almost all the time. In most cases, this growth was of the time-forward variety. New media mostly focused on what happened after the destruction of the second Death Star and the lives of Luke, Han, and Leia in a galaxy restored to balance and peace, for the time being, anyway. Some stories instead attempted to fill in the gaps between the six established films, oftentimes focusing on the time between the prequels and the original trilogy. Hardly anyone had tread on the ground that came before Episode One. After all, what was the point? Darth Vader wasn't even born, much less terrorizing the cosmos at the Emperor's side. Realizing the potential of having both an established canon and a sandbox of potential, BioWare jumped at the chance to make what would ultimately become one of the greatest console role-playing games of all time, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Utilizing the skills and knowledge they had acquired in their making of the Baldur's Gate games, the company put Casey Hudson in control of the project as director and producer. Hudson had joined BioWare as a technical artist on MDK2, and he had a strong vision for how Knights of the Old Republic should play out. Writer Drew Carpitian, who had been a game designer for Tabletop Titans Wizards of the Coast and penned two Dungeons & Dragons novels for them, joined the Star Wars project to script scenarios and dialogue. It's difficult to overstate how important Knights of the Old Republic would become, both for Bioware and video games in general. It is regularly cited as among the best Star Wars games of all time, even when put up against modern entries like Jedi Fallen Order. In fact, you can remove the Star Wars denotation there and the song remains the same. Knights of the Old Republic, like the aforementioned Chrono Trigger, is hailed as simply one of the best video games ever made, period. Incredibly strong writing by Carpitian, expansive exploration across the galaxy some 4,000 years before the Rebel Alliance and Galactic Empire, and unique combat based on the D20 system pioneered in the Dungeons & Dragons games, all summed up to equal a tight, polished package for any and every Star Wars fan. What's more is that this was a pivotal moment in Bioware's design history regarding that signature move of theirs, choice. Like Baldur's Gate, Knights of the Old Republic included a morality system, this time framed around the player character's actions moving them toward the light or dark side of the Force. As before, these decisions affected how the game's story played out, from the outcomes of certain quests to recruitment and retention of party members, and this time they could even change the player character's appearance to reflect their evil intentions. But perhaps most importantly for that signature is that for the first time even the game's ending involved choice. For those dedicated to exemplifying their Star Wars heroes and staying true to the light side of the Force, the game ends with the player character destroying the infamous Starforge and ending the reign of Darth Malak, the Dark Lord of the Sith. But for those willing to tread on the dark side, the game ends with the party in shambles. You could even force your Wookiee companion to murder his Twi'lek best friend. 
and the player character would reascend to the Sith throne, taking the Starforge for themselves. Knights of the Old Republic would lay the groundwork for what would become Bioware's biggest pivot since moving from mechs to mind flayers. By the mid-2000s, the company's successes mostly came in the form of others' properties, Star Wars and Dungeons and & Dragons, namely. And while there was certainly no shame in making games for two of the biggest brands in entertainment, the question was begging to be asked. What if Bioware created their own property? Mass Effect was not Bioware's first original concept game, but with the benefit of hindsight, it does seem like their 2007 magnum opus space opera was perhaps the result of being reminded of the freedom that comes with proprietary storytelling. Choosing to set their Star Wars tale thousands of years before the known canon was intentional, after all. It gave Casey Hudson, Drew Carpition, and the rest of their team the ability to use the moving parts of Star Wars without getting caught up in its tangled web of relationships and timelines. And the logical way to further that independence would be to jettison the canon entirely and start from scratch. With Hudson once again at the helm and Carpition at the writer's desk, plus a team of about 130 other industry professionals, from designers to playtesters and more, BioWare's return to innovation was in full swing. Mass Effect would tell the story of Commander Shepard, a fully customizable player character at the forefront of humanity's emergence into the cosmos. Through the discovery of mass relays, ancient devices found at fixed points in space, the people of Earth had managed to achieve faster-than-light travel, and in doing so found that they were not alone in the universe. A cavalcade of alien races, Salarians, Asari, Krogan, and about a dozen more, were waiting for them on the Citadel, a colossal space station that served as a sort of capital for the galaxy at large. There, a council made up of representatives would assign specters, special agents once again from multiple races, as investigators and peacekeepers of their people. Shepard begins the game as the first ever human candidate for specter status. However, they are only fully inducted into the order after a mission gone wrong, which sees their handler, a Turian specter named Saren, go rogue in the name of the Reapers, a collection of highly advanced synthetic life forms the size of starships who are preparing to wipe out all life in the Milky Way. As the game progresses, Shepard amasses a motley crew and various life forms to learn more about the Reapers' plan and ultimately stop them from executing it. The team at BioWare agreed that the most important element of their new RPG would be choice. After all, decisions are at the forefront of our daily lives, both great and small, and what better way to inhabit the life of a video game character than to truly have control over what that character does and says, where they go, and how they respond to their environment, as much as the technology will allow, of course. One major change Mass Effect would make from its producer's predecessors would be embracing the action RPG subgenre, eschewing the somewhat archaic point-and-click combat system of games like Knights of the Old Republic and its spiritual successor Jade Empire in favor of real-time battles. This was done in favor of both showcasing Shepard as a leader on the battlefield and giving the player more control over the game itself, and thus intrinsically incorporating even more choice into the game's narrative. Action-packed combat was only the beginning. Mass Effect continued putting player autonomy first by cleverly designing Commander Shepard, the protagonist, to be almost entirely customizable. 
age, sex, physical appearance, and background could all be unique to each player's design, creating a stronger bond between players and their on-screen representation in Shepard. While much of the design suite was purely cosmetic, the choice between gender presentations would alter which NPCs the protagonist could romance during the game's run as well. Yes, while Mass Effect certainly wasn't the first video game to have romantic subplots, it definitely pushed them and its M for Mature rating to new heights, allowing the player to form friendly and then some bonds with squadmates in those quiet moments between pitched battles and tense negotiations, sometimes leading to their NPC relationship moving to the captain's quarters aboard the game's legendary starship, the Normandy. Once again, player choice was key. Shepard could potentially date a crewmate of the same or opposite sex, depending on the NPC partner's sexuality, human or otherwise, and they could equally choose to not engage in courtship at all. BioWare's signature morality tracking would return for Mass Effect as well by way of Paragon and Renegade interactions. Much like its predecessors, this system allowed for players to make their Shepard as good or bad as they liked, remaining level-headed during heated arguments or lashing out, sometimes physically, by letting their emotions take over. Choice was at the forefront here too. Just because Shepard was written and coded as humanity's savior, that didn't mean they had to play nice on the road to getting there. But most importantly, Mass Effect's universe at large was not set in stone. As players ventured further into the story, they would make key decisions about their squadmates and missions, the outcomes of which would drastically alter later portions of the game. In fact, it was quite literally impossible to finish the game with your entire squad intact. During a harrowing moment on the planet Vermeer, Shepard would be forced to choose between two crew members, one of which would be sacrificed to save the team and never return. This would be Mass Effect's real legacy and biggest selling point. The player's choices and decisions mattered in a very tangible way, truly making a difference in the world around them. All of this incredible storytelling combined with top-notch visuals, a sweeping futuristic musical score, and a palpable sense of exploration and discovery primed Mass Effect to be BioWare's greatest success to date. Its release on November 20th, 2007 would cement that legacy as the game received high critical and commercial praise almost immediately and would eventually sell over 2 million copies for the Xbox 360 exclusively at first, mind you, in just a year's time. And there was plenty more where that came from. Just over two years later, on January 26, 2010, BioWare released what many consider to be its best sequel. High praise as it relates to a company relatively well-known for its sequels, even if it was Obsidian, not BioWare, who handled the second Knights of the Old Republic game. This reception was mostly because Mass Effect 2 took everything its progenitor established, expanded on what worked, and altered the bits that didn't. Gone were the cavernous menus of weapon customization and clunky, if not unintentionally hilarious, driving mechanics from the first game replaced with a streamlined combat system now with ammunition drops and, well, slightly less clunky driving portions. Much of the old crew was back, but new squad mates were made available too, and with that came even more bonding by way of loyalty missions that would affect how close Shepard became with their crew and incidentally their survival and outcome at the end of the game. Especially impressive was the fact that BioWare had made a lofty promise and lived up to it. Game saves from the first Mass Effect could be imported into the sequel, allowing players to carry over not just their version of Shepard, but their Shepard's legacy as well. 
because the choices made in the first game would drastically alter the way certain portions of Mass Effect 2 played out. Sparing or destroying the Rachni Queen on the planet Novaria, sacrificing or saving the Citadel Council in the final battle. These decisions had immediate impacts in the first installment of the series, but they also had ramifications on its sequel. And of course, if you hadn't played the original, or couldn't, as Mass Effect 2 was expanded to release on the PlayStation 3 as well without a port of the first game, starting a new save would allow you to quickly make those critical choices in a prologue and get caught up to speed. Players were delighted, and so were critics. Mass Effect 2 was nominated for numerous Game of the Year awards and won several of them. It received accolades for everything from its immersive story to its once again perfectly thematic score from composer Jack Wall. And best of all, it set the epic up for a truly powerful ending. Soon, it was announced that while it would not be the last game in the franchise, Mass Effect 3 would bring closure to the Shepard trilogy. All of the choices gamers had made over 80-plus hours of content between the first two installments of the series would finally be resolved. Of course, no conclusion to something this large comes without controversy. It's important to note up front that Mass Effect 3 did actually get a lot of things right. Like its predecessor, it expanded on gameplay improvements and introduced new and exciting characters into Shepard's squad, even as the universe was crumbling around them. Melee combat was refined via the introduction of the Omniblade attack, and this would particularly come in handy during the newly introduced multiplayer mode, a series first. Teaming up with friends to repel hordes of enemies was not just a good time. It added to the player's effective military strength, a running score of how ready one's Shepard and their team would be to take on the final battle in the single-player story. Many of the series' most beloved characters received full payoffs to their completed story arcs as well. This might be the strongest example of the players' choices really making a difference in the overall Mass Effect trilogy. Sure, certain characters may or may not have survived the suicide mission final squad of the second game, but in the third, all bets were off. Quarian crew member Tali Zora Vas Normandy, or just Tali most of the time, was introduced in the first Mass Effect as a pilgrim of her people, but she could end the series as anything from a romantic partner for Shepard and a hero of the migrant fleet to dead by a self-inflicted gunshot wound at the sight of that same fleet being torn apart by the Geth, all because of Shepard's decisions. But if any of the three games could be described as controversial, save for that ridiculous business about sexual content in the first, it's the final Mass Effect, which doles it out in spades. Now, some of these issues were just strange, like the barely altered stock human image of the aforementioned Tally's face, which had been hidden from view for the entire series and was quite the disappointment when revealed for not being alien enough. This was, of course, later rectified in the eventual Legendary Edition remaster of the entire trilogy on modern consoles in 2021. Others were more logistical, like the Day One DLC from Ashes, content that was found to actually exist on the game's disc, but locked behind a paywall above the standard purchase price. The most problematic issue surrounding Mass Effect 3, however, was its ending. After all, this wasn't just the conclusion of a single game, it was the swan song of a sprawling space opera, the build-up of which had occurred over five years of releases and well over a hundred hours of gameplay for most gamers. This was Return of the Jedi long before Disney continued the franchise of Star Wars into Episodes 7 through 9. 
Just as Jedi was for many years the final appearance of icons like Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, Mass Effect 3 was the last time that Shepard, and thus the player as Shepard, would charge into battle to save that universe. In other words, this had to be good. Fittingly, the final action the player would take in Mass Effect 3 would be to make the only decision remaining. As the Reapers bore down on destroying organic life as we knew it across the galaxy, Shepard would succeed in reaching their architect, the Catalyst, a childlike artificial intelligence that insisted its creations be allowed to succeed. The Reapers, it said, were meant to cull any life forms that reached the prospect of creating artificial life, because if the latter were allowed to proliferate, it would eventually overtake the former and bring ruin to the natural order of things. Kind of hypocritical coming from an AI, right? With all of this in mind, Shepard would be presented with three choices. Destroy, Control, or Synthesize. Denoted in the colors red, blue, and green, respectively. In reality, this is the player choosing the ending of the game, and thus the series, that they wish to see. The Destroy Path sees Shepard activate the Crucible anyway, the MacGuffin of Mass Effect 3, and quite literally destroy the Reapers once and for all. Control allows Shepard to upload their consciousness into the Reapers, as a sort of new version of the Catalyst, to use them for good as a galactic peacekeeping force. And finally, Synthesize uses the Crucible to merge organic and non-organic life throughout the galaxy so that there is no longer a difference between them, and as such, no need for the Reaper's intervention in future cycles of harvesting. The criticism of this moment of the Mass Effect series likely is not obvious at first glance. After all, these seem like dramatically different endings, right? But upon closer examination, many disgruntled players argued that there was very little difference between the ultimate outcome. Shepard, dead or gone, effectively or literally, as are the Reapers, the Citadel, the mass relays that started all this, and the cruise ship, the Normandy. And for a series that touted itself on players being allowed to make a real difference in the universe around them, this was about to be a big problem. For many people, having cupcakes delivered to their workplace is, at worst, a momentary lapse in their diet. Otherwise, it's a pretty enjoyable surprise with altruistic intentions, almost definitely. After all, who sends dessert to someone to say they don't like them? For BioWare, the 400-plus cupcakes decorated with red, blue, and green frosting that arrived at their Canadian offices on March 28, 2012, were precisely that. The baked goods weren't a threat, of course, although sadly some of their employees had received those as well, both of bodily harm and even death. No, according to the folks behind the Retake Mass Effect 3 movement, the cupcakes were more of a dig at the quote-unquote many endings presented in Mass Effect 3. In fact, in addition to the corresponding colored frosting, the letters A, B, and C were iced onto them as well. The message was clear, long-time Mass Effect players felt cheated. They'd been continuously built up to believe that the series would truly live up to its you-make-the-decisions hype. And while it had, for quite some time, the multiple-choice finale was something of a letdown. Seventeen years prior, Chrono Trigger had presented gamers with four times the options for their adventurous conclusion, and many were rather drastic departures from each other. Mass Effect 3, in the eyes of the movement, only really had one ending for their beloved commander and the Earth that they fought to defend. 
BioWare responded first by donating the cupcakes to a local youth shelter, which in and of itself drew criticism from some of their senders because, and I quote, they were meant for you guys. Sometimes you can't win for losing. And then by getting to work. In a somewhat rare moment of a company actually listening to their fan base, developers went back into the studio to craft what would eventually be known as the Extended Cut Downloadable Content Pack, made free to all players of Mass Effect 3. This DLC aimed to serve two purposes. First, it added additional options to Shepard's final decision in the game, allowing them to simply refuse to make a choice and not activate the Crucible at all. Now, This would lead to a rather bleak ending for the game, but it also accomplished the goal of putting more choice into the player's hands. The second purpose of the extended cut was to simply show how much of an impact Shepard had on the galaxy, all thanks to the player's decisions. In fact, almost the entirety of the DLC consisted of additional cutscenes taking place during and after the final battle, revealing the very specific fates of squad mates, allies, and even entire planets in the aftermath of Shepard's actions, or non-action as it were. There would even be the possibility that, by way of an extremely high effective military strength, Shepard could survive the destroy ending. Ambiguous, of course, as the player character is only seen barely breathing in the rubble of a collapsed building, but still, the chance was now made clear. Reaction to the extended cut was mixed. Some fans of the series were satisfied with a more fleshed-out conclusion to the trilogy, while others still chided Bioware for providing too little too late. At least, it was generally agreed upon an effort had been made where none was guaranteed. It would have been completely within their power for those in charge to say something about their artistic integrity and leave Mass Effect as they had originally intended it to be. And even though the trilogy had come to a close, Mass Effect was still too popular, scandal notwithstanding, to entirely shelve. So what would come next? For Bioware, the answer to this question was a variety of things. There was, of course, their MMORPG based around Knights of the Old Republic, their Dragon Age series, a high fantasy collection of games modeled similarly to Mass Effect in combat and original story, one of the many projects that occupied their future, and the unfortunately doomed live service shooter Anthem, which never quite got it right. There was even a full-fledged Mass Effect sequel outside of the trilogy, subtitled Andromeda, and set, you guessed it, in the Andromeda Galaxy, as refugees from the Milky Way tried to forge a new way of life in case Shepard and their crew did not succeed against the Reapers. It, too, was met with mixed reactions, mostly about technical issues at the game's launch, but many fans felt it simply lacked too much of what made the first three games so special. Without Shepard and their crew aboard the Normandy, what was the point? As of this podcast, a fifth Mass Effect game is in the works, and the rumor mill is constantly spinning the series will somehow return to its roots. Will the destroy ending of Mass Effect 3 be made canon to allow Shepard to return to the forefront? Now, this would almost definitely be the biggest perceived insult to the fanbase yet, as canonizing anything about the original trilogy that was first presented as multifarious could be seen as a shot fired at those who didn't make the quote-unquote correct decisions in those three games. And yet fans are practically clamoring for Shepard's homecoming, potentially setting up a no-win situation for Bioware. But all of this leads to the biggest question thus far. Were we ever really entitled to those choices we made, even if they were presented to us? Every day, every moment, we make choices. We choose to get out of bed in the morning instead of sleeping past our alarms. We choose to pull into a drive-thru at a fast food restaurant at lunch instead of meal prepping on the weekends. 
Sometimes we choose what makes sense in our minds, and sometimes instead we choose with our hearts. The concept of free will is one that I have to imagine has been both validating and confounding to philosophers for ages now. The belief in a higher power can intersect with it. Does a deity have any influence over our actions and thoughts? And if so, do we then actually have free will? In a fixed history timeline, the past cannot be altered, and because of this, neither can the future. If that is the case, how can we have free will? Even if we take what we perceive to be the most random of actions, are they not actually predetermined in some way? And honestly, does any of it really even matter? After the release of Mass Effect 3, a hypothesis about the game's contentious endings quickly grew popular online. It goes something like this. Though the series never explicitly says as much, Shepard was slowly undergoing indoctrination by the Reavers from the very beginning, much like their one-time ally Saren, the Turian Spectre, in that first installment. After all, the Commander is clearly the Reaper's biggest threat to date, much as they are the Commanders. By the end of the third game, Shepard is on the verge of complete indoctrination when the Catalyst presents those infamous choices. When you heard that the Destroy ending was identified by the color red, did you find that strange? Red is often associated with alarm or concern. Red traffic lights and stop signs, for example, are meant to give us pause. And yet Destroy is widely considered to be the good finale to the series, even though the mass relays are destroyed, so are the Reapers, ending their threat to the galaxy once and for all without forcing humanity to accept them or other inorganic merging against their will. The theory suggests that Shepard's own near-indoctrination is a final failsafe, a last-ditch effort to prevent them from choosing destroy, guiding them instead to the Reaper's preferred endings of either control or at least synthesize. It's only by breaking free of that brainwashing that Shepard is able to change the course of history. But of course, as the players, we are the ones who make that choice. Ultimately, we are Shepard, even if we don't design our specific Shepard to resemble us physically, though many do, naturally. Throughout those three massive games, we were told, and then shown, that our choices made a difference in the lives of those around us, and it makes sense that by the end of that adventure, we want to be shown in the culmination of all of those choices. Perhaps some choose to believe that Shepard is indoctrinated and by extension, make their choice based on that belief. Does that, in some strange way, make us the ones who were under the influence? And if so, by whom? The Reapers and the Catalyst? Or Bioware themselves? Instead of asking, what if our choices mattered? Maybe the question we should be asking is, what if they didn't? The Inquest was researched, written, and produced by me, Hunter Hendricks, with music provided royalty-free by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Check out the full slate of Podzilla 1985 podcasts, from tabletop RPG playthroughs on PZ85 Plays, to the weekly top fives on Podzilla After Dark, plus all of our great specials, like discussions of the paranormal on I Want to Believe, right now at podzilla1985.com. You can also keep up with the network on our Facebook page and subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting service.